Shove, your number one source for sports, gaming, and everything in between. I am your host, Jake Patterson. It is a Tuesday, and we are coming off a pretty crazy weekend of stuff, both in the esports and traditional sports worlds. But we are going to kick it off with, uh, at the time of recording this, what just ended about a half hour ago, the NHL trade deadline. Now, a lot of teams, this year it was mostly some depth moves and some salary dumps. Uh, David Backus going to the Ducks in particular with uh, some extra prospects to sweeten the deal to get them to eat that pretty massive cap hit. But a few teams did make some moves. The... The Hurricanes in particular, the the Carolina Hurricanes made a few, like, big moves today. The, the Canes picked up some extra forwards. They picked up some extra defensemen. Like, they were, they were moving. And, hey, when you're, when you're just barely... When you're fighting for a playoff spot in what is clearly the toughest division in the NHL, you got to do what you got to do. They pick up Trocheck from the Florida Panthers, which for a whole lot of a whole lot of names, but not a lot of talent. Like there's a reason the Panthers were getting getting four guys back in this deal for just one, because Trocheck is better than all of them and that kind of signals to me the Panthers are giving up on this season if they're giving up one of their one of their decent pieces in Trocheck and they're they're getting a reasonable return most of them are prospects so we'll see how, how that actually pans out one of the big ones that happened over the weekend was the Caps getting Ilya Kovalchuk now Kovalchuk is not the speed demon he used to be. He's not the goal scorer he used to be. But when you're on the caps, do you really need him to be? They have Ovechkin, Kuznetsov, and Oshie. You don't really need that much depth scoring on the Capitals. You just need a little bit because your main guys are going to do all the work and your main guy is probably going to pass Wayne Gretzky before his career is over, which for those who need a refresher means Alex Ovechkin will need to score at least 895 goals for his entire career. He just hit 700 over the weekend. It, I thought that was going to happen a couple weeks ago. I really thought he was going to get two in the first period against the Flyers and then score one more at the end of the game to seal it. Because he was sitting at 698 heading into that game. But no, they a few teams in a row have held him off the the scoreboard, or at least from getting two. It took him until over the weekend to finally hit 700. And I'm glad he did, because while I may hate his team, I have respect for him, the player, and I have way more respect for him than I do Crosby. Because... Anyone who knows me and has heard me talk about hockey knows how I feel about Sidney Crosby. 
it is blood boiling rage. Like I actually respect Alex Ovechkin as a player because he is ridiculously good. He is not afraid to hit people or get hit. And he's not that much of a sore loser. And I mean, the game on Sunday between the Caps and the Penguins just kind of proved that where Crosby was on the bench just like slamming his stick around and he broke it over his knee. The the NBC Sports Washington Caps Twitter page had the best caption for that video imaginable. When you live up to your nickname. Oh my god. I started cracking up laughing because that that right there is gold. For those who don't know, Sidney Crosby's nickname is, and has been for uh, way too long, Sid the Kid. Let's be real, that nickname was dumb when he was 19 and he got drafted. That nickname is now really dumb, considering he turns 33 in five months. Yeah. Sid the Kid does not fit a th- a nearly 33-year-old man. He's on the back half of 32. So, yeah. Everyone who knows, knows I don't like him. But his team did make some reasonably smart moves at the deadline. They picked up Patrick Marlowe, um on deadline day. That's that's a pretty good pickup for them. That's the Sharks are getting rid of that salary too, which also really helps. It's a conditional third round pick next year. So that's that's not a bad price to pay for a guy with that kind of experience when you're making a playoff push. I mean they're probably they're probably looking at the playoffs anyway. It it can't hurt to get a guy like like Patrick Marlowe. Like that's that's a pretty good pickup for them. I I hate that Patrick Marlowe is going to the Metro Division to make it even more difficult because that's not what I really need as a Flyers fan because they have no cap space to make moves. They they made a, a couple depth moves today and they they sent some very promising minor leaguers back down to the Phantoms to kind of move these guys in, which is an idea I actually like because Joel Farabee is not a fourth liner. He has to play fourth line on the Flyers right now because he's not good enough to play any higher just yet, but he is not a true fourth liner. He's like a second a lower end second liner waiting to even to jump even higher like i think he's going to be a pretty important piece for the flyers in just a couple of years so sending him back to the phantoms to get him some more conditioning and have these these more veteran guys in that spot who are better suited for the bottom six and really the the bottom six is an outdated term. If you really want to be honest, the bottom three. Give them 
a chance to play in that spot that they are better suited to, while Farabee gets a much higher amount of playing time with the Phantoms. And it also helps because it makes him eligible for the AHL playoffs should the Phantoms make it, which I don't think they're going to. They're pretty low ranked this year, and the Flyers miss the NHL playoffs, which, as well as they've been playing lately, they're getting hot at the right time. I don't think that'll happen either. So him getting more playing time with the Phantoms as the Flyers are coming up on a potential first-round matchup with either the Caps or the Penguins. Yeah, get him some more playing time rather than just sitting on the bench. I'd, I'd much rather have that. So I'm liking some of the moves that have have been made. The One of the other big ones is the Edmonton Oilers, after all these years, finally got smart and realized that Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl can't do it all. Took you long enough, Edmonton. <laughs> when... Why did it take you so long to realize that Connor McDavid can't carry a team on his own? Like he's, he is a generational talent. Don't get me wrong. He is ridiculously good. And for many, many years, the running joke online was that the Oilers did not deserve him. And really they still don't, but now they have finally made some moves to support him and they might be able to actually do something in the playoffs this year. They're, they're still a little lacking in depth just because you can only do so much in season, but he's been with the Oilers for five years. Why did it take him this long? (laughs) Why did it take him this long to get him some help? They've, had high draft picks for years and you don't think you could lure in some free agents with the promise of playing with Connor McDavid. Yeah. Their, their front office. Thankfully they finally straightened it out because that front office used to be awful. And it wasn't that long ago either that that, that front office was really, really bad, but they get Andrea. Andreas Athanasiu and Ryan Kofner from the Red Wings, and they get Tyler Ennis from the Senators. How about that? How about that for these guys, for for Athanasiu, Kofner, and Ennis? Like, you're on two of the worst teams in the NHL, and now you get to go play with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. That's, uh, that's a pretty significant upgrade. Because... The Red Wings have already been eliminated from playoff contention. It's February. They're the only team who has been mathematically eliminated so far. I think that number is going to start to ramp up in the coming weeks. But as of right now, they're the only team who is mathematically out of the playoffs. 30 other teams could still technically get in. So you leave that and... You go to a team who is chasing in a Pacific division that's just been eating itself alive all season long. 
And you get to play with the current best player in the world. What an upgrade. And you you get out of the just total dumpster fire that is the Senator's organization for Tyler Ennis. That has to be a great feeling for him. Normally going from Ottawa to Edmonton, it would be a lateral move, but Edmonton's actually been pretty good this year now that they've, like I said, fixed that front office disaster and have some good players and are now getting support pieces for them. What do you know? Two guys can't win it all in the NHL. Some of the other ones, this one just confuses me. The Sabres trading a fifth, a conditional fifth round pick next year in the 2021 draft for Wayne Simmons. Now, look, don't get me wrong. I love Wayne Train. He was one of my favorite players in his time in Philadelphia. But he's a guy who would get traded to a contender as a depth piece. I don't consider the Sabres a contender. They have not been very good this year. They are well on the outs of a playoff position. And that's another organization that is kind of a mess internally. They've done some things to make it a little bit better, but not really all that much. I am definitely confused by that particular move. Just because he's a guy who helps you get over the hump for a playoff push and you get the devils to eat half of that uh, $5 million cap hit. So that's, that's pretty good, I guess, but at the same time, it, it feels like a, a bad fit in that way. Maybe he'll, maybe he'll help them turn things around, but the Eastern conference is just so ridiculously tight this year. I don't know how much, a Wayne Simmons who is well past his prime is really going to help you. But I don't I don't make the decisions in Buffalo. They uh they don't pay me that kind of money. So maybe they saw something I didn't. Maybe they thought they were going to be able to flip him for something else. They did not. But maybe Yeah, I don't know what they're going to do with Wayne Simmons. Because he doesn't really seem to fit all that much there. And it just seems like he got traded to the wrong team. Maybe the Penguins were in on him and the asking price was too high. Because I saw those rumors circulating around on Twitter a lot. That the Penguins were in on Simmons. And maybe they wanted the Devils to eat more of his salary. Because they don't have that kind of cap space. There's there's a lot of things that could have gone into that, but I still don't get that one. And maybe the the Devils just wanted to get rid of him. That could also be a possibility. And because they didn't get much back in return for him, they got a conditional a conditional pick, a conditional fifth round pick that goes up to fourth if the Sabers make the playoffs and Simmons plays ten games. So 
there's not a whole lot there. Like, I, I think that's staying a fifth-round pick because I don't think the Sabres are making the playoffs. Simmons may play at least 10 games, but I don't think the Sabres are getting in. So that'll that'll stay a fifth-round pick that is going to the Devils. But how often do fifth-round picks really turn out to be that much in any sport, let alone the NHL? So I don't know about that one. That one, that one confuses me. And one of the other ones, one of the first, one of the first trades of the day, really, was the Islanders trading for Jean Gabriel Peugeot, and good lord, three of their picks in the upcoming draft. Two of them conditional. The first round and the third round are all conditional, but. And they did uh, re-sign Peugeot to an extension. That doesn't work out too often, New York. That does not work very often. Trading for a guy and then signing him to an extension, that sometimes it can work. Most of the times it really, really, really doesn't. And... They gave up a whole lot for him. They gave up two picks this year and a third round pick in 2022. Your first round pick this year, that's that's pretty steep. I mean, I know the Islanders are looking to be a playoff team, so that's probably not going to be a lottery pick. Or if it is a lottery pick, it won't be a very high one unless they miss the playoffs and just get really lucky with the ping pong balls, which much like the NBA, we all know are rigged. So I don't think the Islanders will really have much of a chance to win that and move all the way up to the first pick or anything really in the top five. They might get if they miss the playoffs, they might get lucky and get to like six or seven, but I don't see them getting much higher because they're gonna be right on the edge of the playoffs. They are gonna not gonna have a whole lot of a chance to move up. But they they paid a lot for that guy. I know they extended him. And they wouldn't have made that trade if they didn't think they were going to be able to extend him. But still, that is a really steep price for one guy who you are now committing to long-term. That's that's definitely an interesting decision. Knowing my luck, since they are in the same division as my team, it will probably work out wonderfully for them. And the Islanders will take that, take any chance of a playoff spot away from the Flyers, Mostly because of Jean Gabriel Peugeot, because that's just how it goes. I don't think that'll actually happen, but it is a possibility in the back of my mind that that is absolutely what could happen. And one of the other big things that happened over the weekend, it's weird. On the 40th anniversary of the Miracle on Ice, the two best accomplishments in hockey are achieved by a Russian and a Canadian. Obviously, Ovechkin got his 700th in the early afternoon on Saturday, and 
I mean, what else would it have been? It was a one-timer from the top of the circle. What a shock. That has been Ovechkin's go-to shot for his entire career, and the rest of the NHL has yet to figure out how to stop it. Because you really can't. Either he has to miss, or your your goalie has to turn into an acrobat, and on top of that, get really lucky. Because very rarely does he miss one-timers from that spot. I saw the highlight on Twitter. It was one of those where as soon as the pass went his way, you knew that shot was probably going in. And yeah, that's exactly what happened. He gets the pass from Kuznetsov's down low behind the net. He passes it out to Ovechkin, who's at the top of the circle. One-timer, top corner, goal. He's been doing it his entire career, and no one knows how to stop him. How is that even possible? (laughs) Dude's been in the NHL for over 10 years. How has no one figured out how to stop that shot yet? Because it's it's a relatively simple hockey play. It's not like other people don't do this. It's just he's better at it than everyone else. And... Most of hockey fans, at least on Twitter, agree that before the end of his career, he's going to pass Gretzky. He's got 195 to go. So uh, I did the math on the show before how long he would need to do that by the time he's 40. So uh, just... Let's see, 195 divided by, i call it four and a half. He'd need to average 43 goals a year. Or no, five and a half. Yeah. He'd need to average about 35 and a half goals a year for the next five years. Five and a half years. The rest of this season and the next five seasons. To do it by the time he turns 40. Now, he'll turn 40 right before that season starts, just because of when his birthday lands. But to do it by the end of that particular season, he'll need 35 goals a year. That is well within Alex Ovechkin's wheelhouse. He's going to pass Wayne Gretzky before his career is over. And even Gretzky himself tweeted as soon as he did it. He said, congrats, Alex Ovechkin. One of the best scorers in the game. I'll see you at 800. Like, even even Gretzky knows that Ovechkin is probably going to catch him. Like, when even the best player of all time is acknowledging that this guy is probably going to pass him, I think we can all agree he's going to pass him. But one of the other ridiculous things that happened this weekend happened later in the day and somehow overshadowed this massive accomplishment for Alex Ovechkin of of reaching a milestone not many people in the history of the NHL have. Only eight. He He is number eight all time. So only eight people have scored at least 700 goals in the over 100 year history of the in the over 100-year history of the NHL. 
eight people have reached this milestone. That's insane. And it got overshadowed by what happened in Toronto, where I learned today he was actually not currently the Zamboni driver. He is now... The guys I heard said he runs the building, so I'm guessing his job title is like building manager or rink manager or something similar. So he's the Zamboni driver and all the other rink employees' boss. 42-year-old David Ayers, who was the emergency backup goalie in Toronto, which is also a thing I recently discovered. I've heard about it before, but I didn't know how it worked. It's a local guy for each team that just is on standby in the arena should they be needed. And Mrazek and Reimer both got injured in that game for the Canes against the Maple Leafs, so they had to call in David Ayers. The Canes were up 4-1 at the time. They still won. They had to play... Most of the game with a 42-year-old who has never played a single minute of NHL action in the net and try to hold on to a three-goal lead. That's a new one. And they did it. The Canes actually won that game with... A guy who everyone on Twitter was saying is the 42-year-old Zamboni driver. Now, credit to the Canes offense. They knew they needed to score more, and they did. They picked up two more goals to to push that lead because 4-3 with an emergency backup is uh, is not something you want to hold. So they they did the smart thing and picked up a couple more goals just to support him and, and the dude made eight saves. That's that's impressive enough in and of itself. This dude who has never played in the NHL is picking up eight saves in, geez, about 29 minutes of ice time. Had to do the math. He's not on the box score for the... Uh, the Hurricanes, because he's not actually on the roster. Because Mrazek played 25 and Reimer played 6. So that's not the entire game. He, uh... Yeah, he played 29 minutes, picked up 8 saves against the Toronto Maple Leafs, and it's just made a million times funnier by the fact that he is on the Maple Leafs payroll. He works for the Maple Leafs. And he beat them. I mean, they're not making the playoffs this year, let's be honest. But I feel like they should be able to score more than two goals against the emergency backup who works for them. You know, just to... Just a thought in my head that they should probably be able to do that. Because he practices with the Maple Leafs. He doesn't practice with them very often, obviously, because how often 
does the emergency backup ever actually get used? But the Canes needed him, and he came in, and he won them that game. And obviously, they let him keep the puck. But what does that say about the Maple Leafs? I know one thing. I think it's hilarious. Because they hired someone I know not so affectionately. If you're a longtime fan of the show, you will recognize this name. Department Store Dave. He's not even the head coach of the Maple Leafs. Yet his influence is strong and still just as annoying to fans of the team he works for. Because the signature of Department Store Dave is not only showing no emotion on the bench, no matter what is happening, is flat-out anemic offense. And that is exactly what the Maple Leafs produced on Saturday. The fact that the emergency backup only faced 10 shots and saved eight of them, which means they probably weren't very good shots. That is a signature of Dave Haxtell's coaching and his incredible ability to suck the life out of an offense entirely. I thought it was hilarious because he's not Flyers fans' problem anymore. And I'm going to be reminding Leafs fans of this forever. They can they can never talk crap again. Like, Leafs fans can never talk ever again because he's not the Zamboni driver anymore, but that was the dominant storyline on Twitter that, oh my God, the Leafs just lost to a 42-year-old Zamboni driver. The NHL is weird, and it's only going to get weirder because now the trade deadline has passed and we're getting close to playoff time. It's only going to get weirder, and I'm here for it because it's going to be funny. All right, that's it for the NHL. Up next, another crazy weekend in Atlanta for the Call of Duty League here on the Mashup. One crazy weekend to another, the CDL in Atlanta did not disappoint. Holy crap. This was insane. This was clearly a coming out party for both Minnesota and Florida because Minnesota took it to Paris on Saturday in the first game. They Looks pretty good the entire time, and I was not expecting that. I expected that to be much closer and probably go Paris's way, but no, Minnesota got the win. London did what I expected and kind of took it to Florida, but ooh, we'll get back to Florida. And Chicago really struggled against... It was probably one of the two worst teams in the league in Toronto. They just... Did not look like themselves. And, and that would really be a theme all weekend. They just did not look like the Chicago Huntsman, really, at all. And Toronto's been kind of hyping this as a moral victory that they took Chicago to five. I think that's the best they're going to get this year is, hey, we took Chicago to five. I think 
the only team they will beat all year is OGLA, which uh, they haven't even done yet. Well, they haven't they haven't played them yet, but so far they have beaten Seattle. I think the only other team they will beat this year is OGLA, and that's like it. They're not going to beat anybody else because they're just they're really terrible. And that was almost a massive upset to knock Chicago Huntsman into loser's bracket on Saturday. That would have been in the in group play. That would have been just nuts. Well, that that didn't happen. Chicago pulled it out. They pulled it out on search and destroy because they they needed to. They they got pushed to five by a really bad team, and Scump looked off. Formal was not playing that well. Envoy and Gunless were just MIA. They were not playing very well at all this weekend. And our city's played pretty well, but that's like it. Is Scump was still good? But he wasn't as good as he probably should be. And then the rest of the team, other than Arsides, was even lower in their skill level potential than that. Like they they had a rough time with Minnesota. They won a three one, but it was very, very close. And that was the big storyline all weekend, was that they were really, really sloppy the entire time. Because they had no business going to map five with Toronto. None. They should have 3 0 them pretty convincingly. But that is not what happened. And like I said, it just continued through the rest of the weekend. And it culminated... In the semis on Sunday against Florida, who looked super impressive all weekend long. They lost to London on Saturday, but then rebounded from that and just took it to OGLA, who, like I mentioned, are terrible and will probably be the only other team to maybe lose to Toronto because they have yet to win. They have played a grand total they played two launch weekend. They weren't in London. And they played two in Atlanta. They have lost all four of those games. Now, granted, one of those losses was to Atlanta face. And one of those other losses was to Paris. Sure. But they still have not looked good at all. Like, they are, I normally hate to say stuff like this, but it is 100% true. They are a disgrace to the optic name, which is just a total disaster because I remember when OGLA got announced. It was right after the Immortals acquisition and Hex himself just tweeted, that's not us. And he was 100% right. That is definitely not the real optic and they have played horrendously. Like, could you imagine a few years ago 
at like the peak of optic versus phase, like right at the peak of modern warfare too. Could you imagine telling someone in a few years at a major event, optic and phase would meet and optic would get totally dumpstered. They would get swept and look really bad on every single map. Tell a Call of Duty fan that in 2011. And just watch them laugh in your face. They need to figure something out. Because uh, them and the gorillas are hosting the next event in, in two weeks. So, uh, they better get it together because, uh, they're not looking too great. And yeah, they're, they're the last of the first four games on Saturday is them against gorillas. I think gorillas are going to win that one early spoilers for my next Friday show when I do my predictions for the LA event, but they need to figure something out. Cause like I said, they are a disgrace to the optic name right now. They really need to get it together. I don't know what they're doing, but whatever it is, is very wrong. They need to figure this out and they need to figure it out soon. The team who did figure it out, like I said, Florida, because they came back and they reverse swept Chicago in a semifinal game. I was like, oh, Chicago found their groove again. They're up 2-0. Arstes is going to beat his brother. No, I was so wrong. And Florida just stormed back. They won domination. They won the second hard point, And then they just... They just took it to him on the last search map. And every guy from Chicago said it. They played super sloppy this weekend. And they would be correct. They did not look like themselves at all. But this this weekend, even though it was won by Atlanta and Selium won MVP, which he did deserve. Don't get me wrong. He deserved MVP. He was playing out of his mind all weekend. The biggest news start to come out of this weekend is Prestini. Because everyone knows the, the chatter in the offseason. It was he can't play without his brother. He's he's no good without without Arsenis by his side. And he proved that wrong by kicking the Chicago Huntsman up, down, left, and right. And really coming out as one of the stars of the weekend. And that, that interview with the two of them after that game, that was great. That was really, really good. They they did a great job with that interview. And I thought it was kind of funny because they, uh, they cut to their mom in the crowd who was uh, very much wearing Chicago gear. I don't know if she had a, like a Florida t-shirt on under that hoodie or a Florida Jersey, but she was wearing Chicago gear when the camera cut to her. How, how do you explain that one? And she was sitting with uh, with other people all wearing Chicago merch. 
for twins, at least to me, Archdeacon and Prestini look nothing alike, so I couldn't tell if the, it was the rest of their family or if it was the other Chicago parents. I don't know. But it was definitely it was definitely their mom. And all three of them were just like bawling their eyes out in that interview. And like those two gave that series their all because uh, I think Prestini wanted to prove he is actually good enough to play without his brother. And I didn't catch it. I just saw it on a, a recap. But after they won, he shouted over at the, the Chicago uh, side of the stage. He shouted, you need me. Like, okay, he has a massive chip on his shoulder because nobody else would sign him because they thought he needed his brother with him to be any good at all. And he wanted to prove them all wrong. And credit to him, he did. And then you get the finals or the other semi, the other semi Minnesota was up to nothing. And this was another great weekend for them where they looked really good the entire weekend. And then as soon as that domination map kicked in, Atlanta was like, Oh, Hey, we're one of the two elite teams in this league. Our primary competition for that title is struggling right now. So even if we have to play them, we can probably win and we have our home crowd. And they got the reverse sweep. Two reverse sweeps in the semis. Wow. Can you imagine in in like the NHL playoffs or the NBA playoffs or the AL and NLCS? in either of the two Eastern or Western Conference Finals across the NBA and the NHL or the AL and NLCS, you get two reverse sweeps. I think the reverse sweep is... I know it's seven versus five, but I think the reverse sweep has happened a grand total of five times in the NHL. Can you imagine if it happened, the insanity of it happening twice in the same year? That's what happened in Atlanta this weekend. It was two reverse sweeps in semifinal matches. And I was really impressed with with everybody from Atlanta. Selium and Simp in, and Abizi too, in particular. They were super dominant all weekend long. And when they turned it on in the second half against Minnesota, they turned it on. They were ready to go. And they reminded everyone exactly who they are. Because unlike OGLA, they have earned the FaZe Clan name. They have they have played up to a level worthy of that iconic Call of Duty name. And... And then in the finals, I think Florida was a little bit gassed because they just came back and reverse swept one of the favorites to win the whole thing this weekend. And they were up against the other runaway favorite to win the whole thing this weekend. And 
I think Pristini in particular, that was an incredibly emotional uh, semifinal match for him. So they were just gassed. And then the home Atlanta is a ridiculously good team. And then the home crowd at their backs, that was it. Like that was everything was going in Atlanta's favor. And I just got to say to the marketing person within phase clan as an organization, whoever came up with the easy AF hashtag, which then became a chance in the finals this weekend props to you because that is genius. One, it's a great hashtag because it's super short. It's ridiculously memorable. And I mean, FaZe Clan has always had a reputation for having a little bit of a cocky attitude. They've always backed it up, but that's always been their reputation that they have never been quiet confidence like some of the other uh, legacy esports orgs, especially in North America. Because some of the other legacy orgs in other things like Cloud9 or Team Liquid or TSM or Fnatic in Fnatic in Europe, any of the Asian orgs, like they all have this kind of quiet confidence. FaZe has never been that. FaZe has always been, oh yeah, we're better than you and we're about to prove it. Very loudly. So Easy AF fits that perfectly. And FaZe Clan got lucky that Atlanta is the city that bought the naming rights to that org because AF is just perfect. If they were the Florida phase or the New York phase, wouldn't have the same ring to it, would it? Atlanta fits perfectly for them, mostly because of the AF and also the AF logo is really cool. They actually did something to differentiate themselves from original phase clan. Yeah, I'm taking another shot at optic, but the AF logo, I think that's really cool. The, the cockeyed a back to back with the, the F I think that is a, that's a good look and it looks great on, on pretty much any kind of merch you can imagine. T-shirts, hoodies, hats, like it just in general looks good. And the entire crowd chanting easy AF as the clock was winding down on domination on uh, Petrograd, like it wasn't as good as London because London's crowd was top tier. That, that was like a small soccer crowd packed into the copper box, just screaming all weekend long. But the Atlanta crowd was better on Sunday, but they were pretty good. I'm interested to see what the LA crowd is going to do next week. Since both LA teams are not amazing and Atlanta's going to be there. So I don't know how many fans are going to travel, how many uh, non Atlanta residents are on the LA phase bandwagon, but the, uh, the quality of teams in LA is a little bit lower. I mean, maybe not. If Florida keeps playing like they did this weekend, there there are three elite teams. If Florida plays like they did 
on Sunday from now on for the rest of the season, there are three elite teams in, in Cod League now, and the Florida Mutineers are one of them, if they can stick to that. And Minnesota are right there, and they've got some great fans in Minnesota. I'm kind of excited for their their second weekend in May, just because launch weekend, it was really cold. The weather wasn't great. It was It was like right after winter break for colleges ended so everyone everyone in god league's target demo was uh kind of getting back into the groove of going to school so i'm interested to see what they're gonna do with the second weekend in may the weather will presumably be significantly better and schools are going to be either ending or out already. So I think you'll get a better crowd at the Minnesota event in May. I think you'll get a pretty good crowd in LA in two weeks. It's just a matter of, is it going to be mostly LA fans because uh, their teams aren't very good. That'll lead to muted crowds in the later games or, Will some of these other teams have fan bases that travel well or just don't live in the home market? I can see Atlanta having a lot of fans in the California area just because of the association with with FaZe. But the other teams, I'm a little worried because that the other teams at this event is Florida, Minnesota, Seattle, Dallas, and New York. Outside of Atlanta and the two LA teams. That's a long trip for a lot of those fan bases. And Seattle and New York aren't really that good. So I'm I'm definitely interested to see what that weekend is going to be like. But Atlanta, the crowd was better in London. The gameplay was better in Atlanta because that was great. Plenty of wild upsets, plenty of close thrilling games a lot of series went to map five like the both qualifiers went to five both semifinals were reverse sweeps like that's that's a good thing where you're getting competitive games and i think they peaked right under a hundred thousand viewers on sunday which is also a great number, especially when you're streaming on YouTube, because not many people are used to YouTube live streaming. If they peaked, if they peaked right under a hundred thousand, that is very good news for for the COD League, and I'm really hyped for the LA event in a couple weeks, just because the first match on Saturday afternoon. Is Atlanta versus Florida. The next match in Cod League is a rematch of the Atlanta Championship game. If you like Call of Duty at all, even if you have not watched any of the Cod League yet, watch that match because that's going to be absolutely insane in just a couple weeks. But that's what I've got for. Cod League, another high-tier interest of mine, had another crazy weekend, so uh, we're about to get into some college basketball. 
They're getting crazy again down the stretch, and I love it here on the mashup. So, like I mentioned, Cod League was not the only one who had a weekend loaded with upsets. I wouldn't call one of them really an upset because they're both guaranteed top five for the rest of the way this season, unless they have just disastrous last couple weeks. But given the meh nature of the rest of the Big 12, I wouldn't really call Kansas beating Baylor an upset because both of them are solid. They are both guaranteed tournament teams. They're going to be no lower than a two seed, either one of them. But given this weekend, the fact that three of the four potential one seeds lost and one of the potential two seeds to replace those one seeds that lost also lost. Now, all of them lost to good teams. They all lost other than San Diego State because no one in the Mountain West is really all that good this year other than, as we just found out, UNLV. But UNLV has always been kind of a basketball school, and they were, they almost blew this one. Like, they were up pretty big for a decent portion of the game. They started pushing this lead pretty hardcore, and they were, they were up, I want to say, like 12 at halftime. Yeah, they were up they were up 12 at the end of the first half and and San Diego State actually outscored them in the second in the second half pretty considerably. They outscored them 38 to 29. So this was not a crazy dominant UNLV win. The the dominant win was BYU over Gonzaga, but BYU is also ranked. So that's a little more understandable, I guess you could call it. I mean, the difference in rank was considerable. BYU was 23 coming into that game. They have since moved up all the way to 17. And Gonzaga was number two. And they lost to three. So them and... Them and... uh, Well, actually, Baylor, Kansas, and Gonzaga all flipped, but they are still... The top three. Kansas is number one now because they beat number one and they were right within striking distance. And it also helped that number two also lost. So they dropped to three. Baylor drops down to two, which uh, Gonzaga's loss really helped Baylor because they're still a two. They're still the number two in the AP top 25. And they're probably the most likely to keep their spot as a one just because of how terrible the Mountain West is this year, I think that loss maybe knocks San Diego State off the one line. They're probably still going to be a two. They're still five in the AP. They're still top five. So they are still well within striking distance of a, of a top eight seed. I, I don't think they're going to, one, lose again until the tournament starts, and two, I don't think they're dropping below the two line. <laughs> They're just, they've just been too dominant this year to drop any lower than a two seed, unless they just completely bomb out of the, out of the Mountain West Conference Tournament. That is the only way I could see them. And even then they dropped to like a three or a four. So they are fine. And 
given the fact that they almost came back against UNLV, like they played significantly better in the second half than they did in the first half. And it was a pretty late run too that where they closed the gap and only ended up losing by three. So I think that's a case of uh, UNLV running out of gas and then holding on for dear life and just that ended up working out because San Diego State ran out of gas themselves just because they have not been in that situation very much this season because they're normally blowing teams out of the water and holding down the last undefeated streak in the country, which, of course, since they lost, there are no undefeateds left, whether in conference play or regular overall records. And it took until February 21st or 22nd. It took until February 22nd for the last undefeated to go down. That's pretty impressive, especially given the ridiculous number of crazy upsets this year that the last undefeated didn't lose until almost the end of February. I did not expect that to happen, but at the same time with San Diego State, I think I knew San Diego State would be the last undefeated to fall just because they have the out of like the last three and four and five undefeateds, they really had the easiest schedule. So I kind of knew they would be the last one. I didn't think it would last this long, at least at the very beginning of the streak. As As it kept going and it got further and further into conference play, I thought, oh, they're going to run the table. They're going to go through the conference tournament undefeated. It did not work out that way, but I still don't think they drop another game until like the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight at the earliest. They are not They are not a first weekend exit. They are getting to the second weekend at the absolute worst. They're just They're just too good this year. Because even if they, oh, they didn't play anybody, oh, they're overrated. No. In a season like this, where upsets are happening left and right, and you're in a bad conference, and you're ranked either just outside the top five or within the top five for pretty much all of conference play, you're going to have teams hunting you because they want to play spoiler. Because they know your conference is trash and they want a shot at a real quality win. And for them to hold on to that for this long until the end of February, that's really impressive. So I think they are still, they're still going to the second weekend at bare minimum. They're probably Elite Eight. And then I think they run into a team that does actually have more talent than them and takes them out. But the fact that with a very down Mountain West this year, a Mountain West team is going to is going to make the Elite Eight, that's pretty good. And you can't say that for many of the other small conferences because the Mountain West is trash this year. The Mountain West is really bad. So, sure, that does lend some credence to the overrated thing, but at the same time, 
those are still good enough players that they are going to be hunting San Diego State all year long, and they're going to get the best from every single team. And they held out for this long. So they're still really good. And they are, at worst, a two seed. That will make the Elite Eight at the absolute worst. Sweet 16 is probably the absolute worst for them that's actually realistic. Because realistically, they could lose to the 15. Or they could, not realistically, but they could possibly lose to the 15. I just don't think it's very likely. Because... The 15s this year probably aren't going to be that good. Just given the way college basketball is this year, I think the 15s don't stand all that much of a chance against the twos. And I know it happened recent enough that you people are still going to talk about the one versus 16, but it took almost 80 years of the tournament existing for an upset that big to happen. and. The expansion of the field to 64 was about 20-some years ago. I think it'll be a while before you get another one losing to a 16. Because the skill gap and the depth gap is just way too big between the 1 and the 16s. Heck, between the 2 and the 15s is big enough as it is. Like, 1-16, to that is a huge gap. And the only reason that game even happened was because of all sorts of other outside factors. That Virginia team was injured like crazy heading into the tournament. They were... They were really banged up. And then UMBC played a perfect game. UMBC played an absolutely perfect game that is very difficult to replicate. So I don't think you're getting another 16 over one this year. I don't think there will be a 16 versus nine game in the round of 32 this year, just because it's happened once and it'll probably be another 30 years before it happens again. I'm just being honest. (laughs) It's kind of how it goes. It'll be another 30, 40 years before it happens again. Let's let's just get that out of the way now. That I don't think a 1 is going to lose to a 16 this year. And I don't think a 2 is going to lose to a 15. 314 on down is where the possibility for an upset lies. Cuz I could see I could see a 14-3 or 2 or a a 13-4. Like I could see a couple of them happening this year. I'd obviously have to see the bracket, which we're still a few weeks away from, but I could, just given who's projected to be in that 3-4 range, I could see maybe one of these teams losing. I could absolutely see a Maryland losing in the first round. I could see like an Oregon or an Auburn or a Penn State. Like Depending on who they're matched up with, I could see one of them losing as the three or the four. It's unlikely, and it depends on who they're matched up with, but I could see it happening. One of the other things, it was it was lower down the, the rankings ladder because the Pac-12 is on, on the weaker side of things this year. Oregon and Arizona had one of the wildest finishes 
I have ever seen. It was super close game. And at the end, Arizona, and it went to overtime. 73-72 Oregon was the final. And Arizona inbounds the ball, heaves it the length of the court, and gets the ball gets the ball in after a very late layup by Oregon. Because the Pac-12 just decided to be nuts on Saturday. And the very end, Oregon just heaves the ball towards their the basket they are attempting to score on and they and they get the ball in and Peyton Pritchard fouls the guy only up one and it is a shooting foul and he missed them both and Pritchard got the rebound to seal it. What a what a wild game that summarizes this entire season of college basketball. Because overtime was back and forth really the whole five minutes. Like, no one ever pulled away in that overtime, even a little bit. And at the very end, you get this ridiculous heave that almost works. And Oregon still pulls out the win. That's college basketball in a nutshell, especially in the 2019-2020 season. That's... I don't know what that's going to do to the bracket, because they're on the lower end of the polls, and Oregon's probably still in the conversation for a top-four seed, but I don't think Arizona really is. They're going to get in. I don't think losing to a team ranked 10 spots higher than you in the polls by one in overtime on the road is really going to, or no, this was at home, but still losing by one in conference to a team that is ranked 10 spots higher than you in overtime is not going to do that much to hurt your resume. The only team who took even a little bit of a hit out of the big teams that lost this weekend is Gonzaga because they did lose to another ranked team, but it's someone who's so much lower than them in the polls. It was 21 spots down and they got destroyed by BYU. They got absolutely wrecked by BYU. And I always say Gonzaga needs to leave the West coast conference. BYU does too, because they have the budget to compete with bigger schools and they should not be playing in a pretty terrible conference like the West coast conference. They just shouldn't. They, they need to be doing better than that. Both of them. I know some of the other conferences won't like Gonzaga in because they don't have football, but please get Gonzaga out of the West coast conference. They don't belong there. They are not a real mid major anymore. They are, they are a major program who just ten, who just happens to play in overall one of the worst conferences in the country. 
there's always one other team in the in the West Coast every year that you think maybe can compete with Gonzaga. And BYU actually got the win this year. But there's that one team every year. It's like, oh, maybe they can beat Gonzaga. Because how often does Gonzaga lose in conference? Not very often. Not very often at all. This is only their second loss of the year. So, yeah, they're... They're just that good. (laughs) And they both need to get the heck out of the West Coast Conference because that god-awful league is dragging the two of them down. Because if Gonzaga lost to anyone else but BYU, and if BYU lost a few more games in conference, they'd uh, they'd be on the outside looking in unless they won the unless they won that tournament. Just because the league is so bad and any loss will just tank your net rank your net ranking. But as we get closer and closer, I am getting more and more excited for March Madness because this weekend felt like a March Madness preview weekend because you had a lot of really good teams playing each other that aren't necessarily the most evenly matched, other than maybe Baylor and Kansas, but you're still getting really good games out of them. That's... That's kind of the vibe I got from this weekend, and I think the rest of the way you're going to get a little bit more of that as we get closer and closer to Selection Sunday. And then that first weekend of games, oh, that is that is my favorite two days on the sports calendar are the first two days of March Madness. It's Thursday and Friday, the round of 64. There's games on all day. Best day, Best two days on the sports calendar, hands down. You got four games every couple hours. Mm, It is perfect. Those are the two best days on the calendar as a sports fan, and we are getting closer and closer and closer. And college basketball has been nuts all season. I am so ready for the thing they market to the masses as being just absolutely insane. I'm ready for it to actually start. So get me there soon, please. But that's what I've got for college basketball. One last segment on today's show. Talking some Overwatch League. Up next, here on the Mashup. Alright, final segment of the show for this Tuesday episode. And one of the other esports I really like had another good weekend. The Overwatch League in Washington. Also, ridiculous success. They had a great crowd there. That crowd was really good. They were really getting into it, even for games that Justice weren't involved. I know a few I know a few fans were probably able to make the trip, just given the relative proximity to DC of most of these other cities, particularly Philly and New York. And the relative ease of flying to DC if you can't drive there. Because really, when you think about it, you have three options. When it comes to flying to DC, the other two involve driving a little bit more. But if you need to fly to DC, you got three options. You got Dulles, you got BWI, and you got Reagan. So you have you have three options. So it's it's much easier to get there by plane if you can't drive as well. You got you got three international airports within 
like a 40 to 45 minute drive of the city. That is an asset for fans being able to travel. And then New York and Philly could, especially Philly fans, could both drive. It wouldn't be be about a five hour drive for New York fans, be about a three hour drive for Philly fans, two and a half, three hour drive. So there were some some traveling fan bases for this one. So that, I think, helped the crowd in the non-Justice games as well. And for the most part, I have a few takeaways. One, particularly from Saturday and also Sunday, but I kind of knew this would happen. The Houston Outlaws are 100% the worst team in Overwatch League. Can't really deny it now that they have lost to Boston in one of the wildest series I have ever seen. Because last time I checked, it is very difficult to need seven games to only win three times. What an absolutely insane game. How did both teams... I was watching this and I still don't know how both teams managed to both be this awful. You... Boston wins on the control map on Elios. They tie on the Temple of Anubis. Boston wins Dorado pretty convincingly. They tie on Blizzard World. Then Houston wins Oasis and Nepal to force a map seven on Lijiang Tower. They played almost every control map in the game. That's impressive when you only need to win three. I watched this game and I still have no clue how this happened other than it was two really bad teams, both trying their hardest to not lose to the other and be labeled the worst team in Overwatch League, which that distinction has now officially fallen to the Houston Outlaws. These two are not going to be very good this year. And Houston has the next homestand weekend this this coming weekend and there's there's seven games this coming weekend and they are playing games that they probably will not win just given the performance of the performances of London and Toronto gave this week because Toronto proved they were a little bit better than I expected them to be Uh, It was mildly annoying, given that the fact that I thought the fusion should have kind of rolled over them and they needed they needed map five because after after halftime, Toronto just proved like, oh, hey, like we know we know how to beat you. And switching to Surefor was was big for them. Like, I don't think Toronto should play logics at DPS for a while, but Put Surefor out there. He is Surefor and Agilities are by far Toronto's best options at DPS. Like they they played Logics and he got owned by Carpe on Oasis. That was incredible to watch. That Houston or the Fusion were basically fighting five v six and still winning because Carpe was just picking off Logics from across the map, basically on McCree and the fusion were still able to win fights down their best player with him a few hundred feet off. 
that's how ridiculous he is. And Logics made a few positioning errors where Carpe was able to take him out pretty easily. So I think going forward, Toronto needs to just stick with Sure for an Agilities because that is the better combination at DPS. They've they've got to stick with that. They just have to because Logics against a good team is not going to be able to get it done. Sure for is much better. He knows how to flank a lot better. He's way better at positioning. His hero pulls a little bit deeper. They need to stick with Sherfer. Like I was pretty impressed by how well Toronto actually played in this series. I thought that would be the easier of the two matchups for the Fusion, when in reality, they kind of rolled all over New York. Like New York got a little bit. They they fought back on on their defense round on Havana and their initial attack on Eichenwald, but that was about it. Their initial attack on Eichenwald was pretty good. Their defense was okay. Their second attack was god-awful, and their second defense was just... Well, one, it was incredibly difficult, because the Fusion only needed to cap 33% on the initial point, which, uh, if you've ever played a hybrid, hybrid map in Overwatch, which, if you've played Overwatch, I assume you've played a hybrid map, is very easy to do. Capping 33% of the first point on a hybrid map, especially on Eichenwald, is incredibly easy. So the fact that they were able to completely keep them off the board in their their overtime rounds attempt, and then just kind of roll through on offense and do their thing, that just proves that the Fusion are A, ridiculously good, and B, New York is a little bit overrated. Because if you really think about it, the only good team they've played so far has stomped them. The only good team they've played so far is the Fusion. And they got stomped. Because they kicked the crap out of London on the opening weekend. And they kicked the crap out of Boston even more so the next day. And then they've also beaten... They've also beaten Houston. They 3 0 them. So, really, I don't think New York are actually that good. I think New York are good, but I think they are very overrated because they have only beaten bad teams. They're 3-1, which looks good on paper, but when you actually look at who they've beaten, it's not that impressive. The Fusion have actually beaten good teams. They've been challenged. They beat the Justice. They kind of handled their business with Mayhem, so they had one less impressive win. And then they beat New York, and they beat Toronto, who was much better than I expected them to be. So, yeah, until I... Right now, the Fusion have reached the level of the Shock and the Titans. They just have. I mean... San Francisco and Vancouver don't play again for a couple more weeks. They don't play for a while. When is their when is their next game? It's all East Coast teams that are playing in the next couple weeks because the uh, the China and Korea events were all getting canceled. So right now, San Francisco Shock don't play again until March twenty eighth. They're going to have to find a makeup venue for some of these events because 
if the Asian teams aren't playing, they, they have to have them play in LA or something because they can't fall this far behind the other teams in the league because none of the Asian teams have played yet. Only the North American and European teams have played so far. So they need to figure something out, have them play in LA or have a, I mean, that's the only thing you can do, right? Is have them play in LA because if China and Korea are both out of the question for playing, you need to figure something out because right now, all of the Chinese teams plus Seoul Dynasty have yet to play a game. Chengdu, no games. Hangzhou, no games. Guangzhou, no games. Shanghai, nothing. Seoul, nothing. They need to figure something out because right now they're going to really fall behind. And for all the, the West Coast teams too because in San Francisco Shock don't play again until the end of March. Your reigning champions don't play again until March. You got to do something about that. I don't know what that is. I don't know how you fix this particular issue because this is something no one really saw coming when they made the schedule. And how could they? But they really need to figure this out. Thankfully, uh, London are also hosting an event the weekend the uh, the shock do. So you'll be able to get a, a few more games on the board at least for some more uh, NA East and uh, Euro teams, but they really need to figure this out. Because there, there's some Chinese teams on the schedule, not on the schedule till April, but they are, they're on the schedule. They really need to figure out a way to to get these guys to play because if they can't play until then, they're going to fall so far behind in in games played in the standings. It's not even going to matter come the end of the season. It's gonna it's gonna mess with the standings because all the other teams will have played so many more games by then. So they need to get on that. I'm sure people with Blizzard and the Overwatch League are freaking out trying to figure something out. And they just haven't told anyone, but they really need to do something. Back to the actual games. London, they actually looked okay this weekend. I was I was pretty impressed by what they were able to do against the Justice. Now, some some kind of bug has worked its way through the Washington Justice roster, including Corey. So they were not at a hundred percent really at all this weekend. They were, they were sick the entire time. I don't think they want to use that as, as an excuse, but it is still a factor. It is still a thing that happened. So I was, I was very surprised with the fact that they went. zero and two and they got reverse swept by London who I don't, I still don't think are a very good team. I think they will be a good team. And I think this game was more proof of the fact that they will be good once they get a little more consistent. Because right now I think they're just based on how young that team is. I think they're going to struggle with some consistency issues because that's been a problem with, with young teams. I think, I think they're going to struggle with some consistency issues while they work out 
team chemistry while they work out playing on the big stage, work out playing in front of crowds, work out all that other stuff. There's going to be some growing pains and those growing pains are going to translate into stuff like this, where they reverse sweep the Washington justice in Washington, but have also lost to New York and London in New York in week one. I think they'll do pretty okay at the London event in about a month and a half or so. But with them, it's going to be some some serious growing pains. At least that's what I think. Because they've been, I mean, sure, they played three games total so far. So it's hard to call them inconsistent. And this was a, a relatively different roster to the one that played in New York. So calling them inconsistent, it's a little early to say that, but I could see a young team like them of mostly rookies struggling with, with some consistency issues. And I, and this game is just on the more positive end of being inconsistent where you maybe reach up a little bit and beat a team you maybe shouldn't, but then there's the other end where you lose to a team you probably shouldn't. One of the other big things that's happening in Overwatch very soon is the experimental card is getting added to the game. As I'm recording this, it is supposed to happen tomorrow. If everything went well with it, as you're listening to this, it's probably already live or it will be very soon. And one, I love that they are taking console player feedback into account as well, because sure, I have Overwatch installed on my laptop, but I have been a console Overwatch player since day one. So I am very happy they are taking console players feedback into account on this instead of just locking it to PC like the PTR is. And I get has to be. I mean, just by the nature of doing stuff like that, you have to put it on PC. I, I get that. But it's nice to know that they are taking console player feedback into account. And the first thing they are attempting is a modified roll lock system called triple damage. As a DPS player, I am very happy with this because we have dealt with some longer queue times since roll lock was introduced because it is the most popular role in the game because let's be honest, for the the average player, it's the most fun. I mean, I can play support and I can play tank too, but I really don't like playing tank because tanking is kind of boring, if, especially if you're the main tank. I can do it, but it's not exactly my favorite thing to do when I when I fire up the old Overwatch. I don't exactly want to be Reinhardt. And support, I really like, but it definitely took me some getting used to. And I know it's not for everyone, so it makes sense that DPS is the most popular. And they're taking that into account and shuffling up team structure to include three DPS heroes. Which I also enjoyed just because of its the fact that it's kind of a relic of that little mini F goats movement that kind of spawned at the very beginning of the season last year. Where teams were just like, okay, we're not any good at this comp and we know it's overpowered, but we're not going to play it. We're going to find the one way to counter it 
and just play like the most aggressive version of dive ever. Play with three DPSs, including Farah and a wrecking ball on tank. Let's go. And if triple damage does become a thing, I think you'll see a return to that comp where you get like a McCree and a Reaper and a Farah or a Genji, a May and a Farah. And then you have Mercy and Ana or Mercy and Lucio as your supports. And why the heck not? If if they go to 3-1-2 and there's only one tank in the game, they're going to buff the heck out of the off tanks. Jeff even said that in the developer update, that they're they're going to, to buff D.Va and Zarya and Roadhog. And I assume Wrecking Ball is in that category too, because he is absolutely an off tank. They're going to buff them to make them viable as the only tank in the game. So this doesn't just completely screw over D.Va players. Oh my god, this would be amazing for Fusion. This needs to happen. <laughs> I just thought of how amazing this would be for the Fusion. Because their weak link is their main tank. And if they have an excuse to not play him. And, just, and their strength is their DPS depth. Oh, this needs to happen, and it needs to come to Overwatch League soon, because, I mean, that is for totally selfish reasons, both for me as a player and me as a fan of a team who struggles with main tank play and has a bunch of DPS depth. If that happens, book it right now, the Fusion are winning the Overwatch League title, because their DPS depth is unmatched. And if you take out the weak link of Sato, because let's be honest, he played a little more like weak link Sato this weekend. That team is untouchable because you would have Carpe and Ivy, who has proven himself to be a very good Overwatch League level DPS. And then you throw EQO back in there. And then you have Poco and the two rookie supports who are both playing out of their minds you have to give the fusion the title at that point. Like you wouldn't have a choice. You, they'd just be guaranteed a championship. I know that's incredibly cocky of me to say, and I don't normally talk like that, but it's kind of true. So I, I kind of really, I wasn't sure about three, one, two until just now, as I'm recording this, I'll have to play it and you'll get my review of it on Friday. But as of right now, I am all for three, one, two roll lock just because of the chaos that would ensue, both in solo queue play, just at home, and in the professional scene. Oh, I want this to happen, because it would be such amazing chaos. But that is all I have for today. Hope you all enjoyed the show. On Friday, obviously break down the Houston Overwatch event coming up this weekend. Break down a few other things. Break down some college basketball. What what the NHL is up to. We're getting close to playoff time. Kind of. Same with the NBA. Any other crazy stories that come out about baseball. And it's combine week. And that's where free agency and trade news first starts leaking out. Because all the agents and all the GMs are in the same, are in the same place all at once. For really the first time 
in the the new season. So any of that that comes out and I find interesting, that might be part of the show for Friday too. But that is all for today. Hope you enjoyed, and I will talk to you on Friday. See you then. Thank you.